Oh, good evening again, everybody. I'm just getting myself organised here. Move some things out of the way. Hang the mask up over there. Um, hello to those of you who are here, as well as those who are watching from, from remote places. It's a great joy to be back here at Jamboree. Thank you for the invitation, Jody. And it's, um, it's especially nice because I haven't been able to be in a church for a couple of weeks. Uh, I'd encourage you to open up Acts chapter 3 and have it in front of you because that's the uh, part of the Bible that we're going to be looking at tonight and I'll get to it in a few minutes but first let me say this, it's not about you. That's how Rick Warren starts his book, The Purpose Driven Life and before you um, even get to the rest of the book I reckon it's worth the price of purchase for those four words. It's not about you, it's something that I constantly need to remember in my life And it's something as well I constantly need to remember when reading the Bible. It would be tempting to pick this book up and to think that it's a self-help book or it would be tempting to pick it up and think it's just a manual for how I'm supposed to live my life. I do do actually think the Bible does give myself some help and I also think it illuminates the pathway for how we should live. But it will only be that once I realise that this book isn't a story about me. It's a story about who God is what he has done and what he's still doing and once I see that I reckon I'll start to see that my life like a small river joining a big a small stream joining a big river will start to make sense and so I'm going to begin by praying today that God will help us through this passage to see more of who he is and understand more of who we are and what our mission is in the world in the light of that so please join me as I pray. Heavenly Father, you have spoken to us through your word and we come here today longing to hear and to understand what it says. And so as we open it now and as I speak from it, help me to be faithful, enable your people here and those at home to retain what I say that points them towards Jesus and to forget everything that doesn't. Uh, Lord, grow us to know you more and to love you more through our time together here tonight. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's see if we're clicking well. Maybe not. It's all right. There we go. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a heap of TV shows over the years which have pushed on or attempted to push on after the main character has left. I was thinking back in the 1970s, Happy Days, for those of you who remember the show, Richie Cunningham heads off to college and leaves the show. They try to push on with Fonzie as the main character and doing increasingly desperate things in the plot to try and retain the audience. Anyone remember when Fonzie jumped over the shark on some water skis? (laughs) Coining the phrase, jumping the shark. Um, Since then, The Office uh, sort of tried to continue for two more seasons after Steve Carell left. I say tried to because things were really not the same. Uh, To go back to the painful and downward spiral of Charlie Sheen. He eventually left Two and a Half Men and got replaced by Ashton Kutcher. I don't think it was ever the same after that. And I mention it all because uh, I think we need to understand a bit of the context of Acts chapter 3 before we come to it tonight. Um, This is, Acts is the second volume of a two-volume work written by Luke. The first volume, Luke's Gospel, records the life, work, miracles, teaching, death, resurrection of Jesus. But when you come to Acts, the second volume, Jesus is gone. 
main character is gone. Well, he's gone within a few verses. Anyway, if you have a look at Acts chapter 1, you can see after seeing this, verse 9, after saying this, he, Jesus, was taken up into a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him. So verse 9 of this second volume, Jesus is out of there. And the disciples are left standing around, staring at the sky, scratching their heads, wondering what they're going to do now. It's like New South Wales in the origin last week, thinking, well, how are we going to beat Queensland when Nathan Cleary's not here? He's the one who led us to victory in the first two games. Turns out what they're going to do is lose. Um, But they're probably asking that question, well, what are we going to do? How is the mission of Jesus going to continue if Jesus isn't here? Which is a fair question. See, what is God going to do in the world once his son is no longer in it? Or to put it another way, what's God doing in the world today now that Jesus is no longer in it? And what's our part in that? Because I don't know about you, Christianity can at times feel a little hopeless. We look at the world around us sometimes and it feels like the gospel is losing traction. It feels like the church is losing ground. And we think, wow, how's this going to play out? Is this really working? Or is Christianity no longer got something to offer for the world that we live in today? We faced, as has been alluded to already tonight, increasing hostility. Certainly in some parts of the world there's severe hostility. But even in our culture, we face increasing hostility for those who uh, are trying to be outspoken in their faith or even just to defend why we believe the things that we do. It can seem hard to engage our neighbours with our beliefs. It can be hard to be brave and bold and confident when our saviour Jesus hasn't been walking around here for 2,000 years. And you ask the question, is the Christian church just a bad season of a show that should have ended when the main character left? Well, here's what Luke is telling us in the second volume. First of all, the main character has not left. You might have guessed I was going there. Acts, back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, just before Jesus goes, he says this, you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. Jesus hasn't left. The Holy Spirit, he says, is going to come upon them. And if you read Acts chapter 2, that's exactly what happens. The Holy Spirit arrives at Pentecost. They've got fire above their heads, symbolising and illustrating the presence of the Holy Spirit. And they begin speaking in other languages, symbolically, but also genuinely beginning what Jesus said was going to happen, that they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. It's going on in Acts chapter 2. I'm not even sure that when Jesus says that you will be my witnesses, I think it's partly a command, but I think it's partly just a statement of fact. Guess what, guys? This is what's going to happen. And you get to the end of Acts and you can see that it has been happening. Secondly, the mission of God then is only just getting going. The main character hasn't left and the work is still going. So let's have a look then at Acts chapter 3 because it follows out of that and I think it has a lot to say to us as we ask the question, what's God doing in the world today and what's our part in that? Right, first of all, uh, we start with this man who is excluded. Verse 1 of Acts chapter 3, Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. Now, in the Greek it simply says that they went there at the hour of prayer we assume 
in the NLT, they were going there to pray, it doesn't really matter. They were going to the temple and they were going, we, we would think, to take part in the prayer service. But on the way in, they noticed something. Have a look at verse 2. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When they saw Peter and John about to when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Now, if you count the number of times the temple or gates or parts of the temple get mentioned there, you come up with about five, I think, and you start to wonder whether Luke is making a point. And by the way, I reckon I could have sat down before I started and Tim's kids' talk would have pretty much said everything I'm going to say here tonight, so shout out, Tim, wherever you are. Excellent work. But Luke is seeming to make a point that this man is at the gate of the temple. And we'll come to that a little bit later on. But why is he there? Well, he's there to ask for money, and maybe I'm being cynical, but it seems like a pretty good place to plonk yourself. People are heading into the temple to do their religious, if not pious, duty. And if you're ever going to be able to depend on somebody's generosity, maybe it's the time when they're going in the temple to pray. Because it's not going to look so great if you're going to pray, but you're happy to walk past some poor bloke who's begging at the door. He's been lame from birth, and it seems that this money that he gets is his means of survival. But I am caught on the fact that he's at the gate. I wonder why. I wonder why they don't put him inside the gate. Well, look. The evidence is sketchy on the extent to which disabled people were welcome inside the gates of the temple. We do know that according to Old Testament law, you can read it in Deuteronomy, that blemished sacrifices were not acceptable to God for good reasons. And there is a view among some people that maybe that idea had actually washed over into a view of disability that was they too um, were unacceptable to God. We don't exactly know. Maybe he was outside the gate because of his own choice. Maybe he felt like he was unacceptable to God. Maybe you know how he feels. Maybe some of us feel the weight of our own mistakes and blemishes and sin enough that we can't shake the feeling that God might want to keep his distance from us. We can't shake the feeling that what God really thinks of us is, listen, straighten up and fly right and then come and see me. Only readers of Luke's first volume back in Luke chapter 5 might recall a time when he was challenged by the religious leaders for hanging out with the down and outs. The NLT, I love it, calls them the scum. Now, do you remember Jesus' response? He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I love that line. And if you, by the way, feel locked out of the presence of God, distant maybe at the gates of God because of your own sense of your inadequacy or your sin, then I would take this opportunity to remind you of those words of Jesus. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. He came to die and rise for the spiritually sick. And the sickest of all, frankly, are those of us who have a hard time realising that. But this man was no less acceptable to God because of his disability than you or I or anybody else present that day. And it's worth noting, actually, because some of the world's largest religions would look at a guy like that and draw the conclusion that he is the way he is because of something that he has done. Now, that is not the truth 
of the Bible. So, what does the man want? Well, he's asking for money, and there is something, two things, I reckon, that are desperately sad about this. First of all, there's a guy who, as Tim and the Kids Talk alluded to, more than anything needs the ability to walk. More than anything, what he really needs is to be made whole, and he's forced to settle for a couple of coins, day in, day out. It's not what he needs. He needs to be able to walk, but he's forced to settle for coins. But the second tragedy, if you look at verse 4 to 6, is even worse. Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, look at us, getting his attention. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. High point in the drama. I'm going to get some money. Verse 6, Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you. It's a letdown. It's terrible. Not only is he looking for something that's far short of what he actually needs, he doesn't even get it. He wants money, which isn't what he needs, and they have none of it anyway. It is worth noting that what he wants is far less than what this man needs. And we live in a world where we are surrounded by people like that. People who are looking for something that is far short of what they actually need. And if we're honest, we're among them. We desperately chase after success or careers because we believe that will give us a feeling of significance, like we are somebody, like we've made it, like we matter. And what we need is to understand that our significance is found in God's love for us, Christ's death for us, that his success, if you want to lose that, use that language, is enough for us. We look for promotions. What we need is the gospel. Others of us are chasing money, believing that the money will give us contentment and happiness and comfort. You drive past this big poster coming down through Kanahooka. I don't know if you've seen it. I know we don't travel anymore. But up near the race course, they're heading south. There's this big poster up on the wall. Gets me every time. It says, wake to ocean and marina views. They're trying to sell land up in the marina. Each time I I see it and I think, yeah, I could do with some marina and ocean views. I wouldn't mind that. I just need to get my hands on some more money. The reality, of course, is that what I need is the deeper contentment that comes from knowing that I have a God who has promised to supply all my needs, whether I have marina views or not. I need the understanding that this world is not my ultimate home and that for that reason I shouldn't actually expect to find ultimate comfort here. What I want is money. What I need is true contentment and joy and the place that I will find them is only in the gospel of Jesus. Or we look for power and control. We look for the ways that we can influence and change other people because it helps us to feel like the out-of-control nature of our own hearts and minds is going to be okay. And so we share our opinions on social media, hoping to influence and change others. We treat, if we're parents our kids sometimes in a way that is more about us feeling powerful and in control than actually about their own growth and good. Maybe it's just me. We hide things about ourselves that we're uncomfortable, about things that we think will make us seem weak. We go after all of those things that we think will make us seem in control. 
What we really need is a deep conviction that God is on the throne. That he is powerful, which means it's okay if I am not. He is in control, which means I can rest even though I might not be. Even though the world to me might seem like it isn't. I can rest in knowing that nothing happens that is outside of God's sovereign plan, whether today is a rock day or whether it is a diamond day. I can rest in that because I'm not in control. You see, we all do it. We all do what this guy is doing. He's at the gate. He is looking for something that is far short of what he actually needs. You see it here in this verse. And if you're honest, you will see it in the mirror. We all do it. I sometimes think that we, are, we can be like desperate survivors floating around in a life raft, so thirsty. And Jesus speaks about this thirst that we have. We're so thirsty. We look at the ocean around us and, and would think that if we just dip a cup in it and drink it, we will feel better, but we would be drinking salt water and it will make us more thirsty. And it's what we do day in, day out, when we look for things less than Jesus to give us what only Jesus can actually give us. That's the picture you have in verse 5. It's a picture of us in our sin. And I would say it is the blank canvas on which the gospel of Jesus shines its most bright. And if you don't know the joy of that, by the way, if that's not where you're at and you think, you know, that is me, that's what I need, then today, tonight, would be a great day to come to Jesus. So what happens next? We get a man in need who becomes a man made whole. Have a look at verse 6. Peter gets his attention and he says, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. The guy's got to be thinking, well, I don't see anything else you have that I need. But Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. I don't have the thing you think you need, Peter says, but I've got something better. I can help you to be whole again. I do wish I knew what Peter was thinking in this moment, by the way. What suddenly makes him think that he can do this? Maybe the penny finally drops and he starts getting these words come back from Jesus. You will be my witnesses. The power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. I will be with you always to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. I don't know. But whatever it was, I think Peter has realized that the hero of the story hasn't left the set. He's realized that Jesus is still there. In spirit and the power of his name has not been lost. And so Peter doesn't heal this man. You've got to notice that. Peter doesn't heal him. He's healed by the name of Jesus. And it is only by the name and the power of Jesus that any of us will find forgiveness, joy or rescue either. Now I say it wasn't Peter because just a few verses on, Peter speaks to the crowd in verse 12 down there. Look, Peter sees the opportunity and addresses the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what's so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? Yeah, that would be strange if an ordinary human did it, absolutely. Peter says, no, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. So the great work that you just saw happen, the thing that is is going on here, is not by the disciples, it's through them. It's through them. What was Peter's part? Faith. His part was just a confident belief that God would continue the ministry of Jesus through him. And so his part is to be faithful and trust the power of Jesus' name. 
And if we come back to the question that I asked right at the beginning, what's God doing in the world today? He's doing the same thing that he was doing then. He's bringing broken, separated souls to find their home and healing in Jesus. Nothing's changed. But this is a massive moment. It's a massive moment in the story of Acts and the spread of the gospel because this is the beginning of that outworking of the gospel that gets told in the story of Acts. And there's a couple of interesting things here. First one, this story, as Tim showed earlier, happens outside the temple. This guy might not have been able to get into the temple, but God came to him. And throughout the whole story of Scripture, the temple was the dwelling place of God. That was where God was, and the work of God, if you like, happened in the temple where the sacrifices and the worship took place. Then Jesus turns up, and the work and the ministry of God happens wherever Jesus goes, because he's the presence of God on the earth. Now Jesus is gone. So where is the work of God going to take place? Well, this is significant because it seems like, with the Holy Spirit, the work of God is now happening through the believers running around wherever they are. In this case, just outside the gates of the temple. But this is the beginning of Acts chapter 1 happening. They will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. We might just be a couple of metres outside the temple at this stage, but it's going to be happening. It's going to be spreading. And in the end, it's the reason that we're here tonight in Jamboree, because it has spread all the way to us. By the end of the book of Acts, you find yourself in Rome. Paul is on the doorstep of his own death. And you see, if you want to read the rest of Acts, it just keeps reverberating. The gospel keeps spreading. Now, I called this talk tonight a leap of faith, and I want to explain why. Let's go back to old mate at the temple for a second, the lame man. Verse 7, Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk then walking and leaping and praising God. You, you can't read those verses without having a song in your head, can you? It's, it's, for me, it's physically impossible. Then walking and leaping and praising God, he went into the temple with them. What is the response of this man? He leaps for joy. I love it. He is leaping. Now, we know he had faith because Peter tells us that down in verse 12. But now with strengthened feet and legs, he is jumping for joy. Um, in 2014, I stood on my chair in one of the northern grandstands at ANZ Stadium on the day that my team, the South Sydney Rabbitohs, beat the Bulldogs. It's great to win a grand final, but to beat Canterbury doing it is just the icing on the cake. Um, I stood on my chair. I'm, I'm hugging my mate Mark, a fellow South Sydney fan who's there with me. Half drunk cups of beer are being thrown in the end. You know South Sydney fans are, are joyful when they're prepared to throw away half a cup of beer. Um, I'm high-fiving strangers I don't even know we were celebrating this is all pre-COVID of course it's hard to imagine a scene like that now we are celebrating a victory that has that was won and, and look it was a long awaited victory for South the premiership drought was longer than Israel were in the wilderness but we leap for joy at frankly what is a small victory you know, it was a small victory but as a follower of Christ, it's time to put yourself into the story. Because I would say, if you're a Christian, you're the lame man in this story. You're a helpless, desperate person who through no doing of your own has been made whole. 
You've been raised to glory and you have got something to dance about. You might not be successful. You might not be rich. You might not have power. You might be confronted by all sorts of changes that are going on in the world right now and I'm not unmindful that there are probably people here or viewing online who even in the last 24 hours are looking at changes that could significantly affect your livelihood or plans that you have and you are feeling rattled. You might face challenges in your health. You might face issues in your family. You might face all manner of things that I have got absolutely no idea about. But I'll tell you what you don't face. You don't face the condemnation of God. Because Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You read in Ephesians that we've been the riches that we have been given in Christ are beyond comprehension. You read again in Romans chapter 8 that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. Of all the things you face, you don't face a life without God. You don't face being rejected because of your sin. You don't face the consequences of your sin. You don't face eternal separation from God because Jesus has won a victory that is so far beyond the victory that my team won in 2014 that it is almost inappropriate to use the analogy. You have something to dance about. You've got something to leap about. And if you want to put yourself in the story, start there. Because right now it is very easy to get down, and understandably so, about some of the difficulties we face. But just get your feet back on the ground for a second. Because we, as the people of God, have got something to leap about. But there is another leap going on here that I alluded to and it might seem strange, but I think God makes a bit of a leap here as well. This miracle does happen outside the temple wall and it happens outside the visible presence of Jesus as well. It's happening through the disciples. Now there is an interesting passage. You don't have to flick to it, but you can if you want. Back in Isaiah chapter 35, I won't camp there long. In Isaiah chapter 35... um, you read some interesting verses. 35 verse 5. Now this is Isaiah uh, prophesying, speaking to the people of God in exile, talking about their redemption that would come. He says, "Then Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then, listen to this, then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Now, when's this going to happen? Like all Old Testament prophecies, they sort of come true in different times in different ways. We definitely saw that when Jesus was walking the earth. He raised the lame people to walk again. He gave sight back to blind people. So Jesus did it. But it seems interesting that Luke is using the exact same language of Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 35 to describe what's happening now. Now, the verse before where I just started reading, Isaiah 35 verse 4 says when this is going to happen he says it'll be when your god comes to save you perhaps luke is trying to help us to see that god has made a leap as well he saved his people from exile he promised that he would and he did he saved his people by sending christ to die maybe luke is now saying that that saving work of god that causes the lame to leap like a deer is now moving on It has moved beyond the temple walls and it is happening through 
the disciples of Jesus. Through those who have faith in his name, through those who are empowered by his Holy Spirit. Which puts us back in the story again, doesn't it? In another place. Now we're not apostles. I think there are some distinctions probably between Jesus' immediate disciples, those who witnessed his ministry and us. But I would say, and you can fire all your crazy questions about this at Jody for next week. I would say there's nothing in scripture that tells us that God won't continue to heal like this. There's nothing to say that he won't continue to do miracles like this through his people. Not that we should be expectant of it, but let's put ourselves in the story. We do, like those apostles, have the Spirit of God. We've got that empowering, and we are part of the ministry that he speaks about in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that we will be Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth. He might not mention Australia in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He might not mention Jamboree and found or heard of Jamboree probably at that point in time necessarily but here's where we are in Jamboree in our families in our workplaces in our sporting teams in our communities in as much as we can engage with them at the moment where opportunity presents itself through faith we use the gifts that God has given us to do good works you read about it in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7 or something and to point others to Jesus in all that we do. We do share something in common with the disciples in this story. We are part of the saving work of God. We are empowered by his spirit and we should be looking for opportunities expectantly for God to continue that work through us. All right, let me bring some of this together. Um, Tim Keller, there is, there is a, another leap there, I guess, that's for the disciples just on that slide. Maybe the leap that's going on for the disciples is they realise that last leap. They're now saying, we, we are going to be the hands and the feet and the mouth of the Lord Jesus in this ministry. It's a big leap for them. Let me start to tie this up. This is what um, I think is on the outlines next. Tim Keller makes the suggestion around some of these passages that it's good to look in different directions and it's helpful here. Um, I would say that this miracle, these events, help us to look back first of all. They help you to look back, as we did to Isaiah, to look at the promises that God made hundreds of years before and see how God's faithful to them. But also to look back to the the command or the promise that Jesus makes in Acts chapter 1 and go, wow, Jesus said it would happen and it's happening. And we, in 2021, can look back at the last 2,000 years of the onward march of the gospel and the church and go, yes, it is happening. It helps us to look down this story. To look down, I would say, to those people who we might sometimes be tempted to look straight past. Those who might seem below our gaze. Those who, if we're honest, we might think are beyond the reach of the gospel or maybe even undeserving of it. Look down. They need saving. It's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. This passage helps us to look up. We see that the disciples of Jesus don't act in their own power. They're well beyond their own power. They are looking up and empowered by the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus. That's what makes things happen. And I'd say it helps us to look forward because this event was the beginning of the movement of the gospel through the entire world from the temple outwards and which has caused us to be here tonight, as I said before. 
and it helps us to look forward further, further still. You've got a guy leaping and praising God here. We can read this and look forward to the day when Jesus returns. Look forward to, as it says in Revelation, that time when people from every tribe and language will be singing praises to God. And I'm going to assume at this point that we might be leaping as we do it. How does all of this end? I didn't look very much at these last few verses, but the verses that I didn't look at, you can read them there, um, show how this all finishes off. Those who witnessed the transformation in this man are absolutely amazed. And it's something to pray about, that the church, that through the church today, our communities would marvel at the power expressed in love, in boldness, in generosity, in wisdom, in unity that is at work among us today. But there is a final warning here as well. This begins a series of events that repeat in these first few chapters of Acts. I'd encourage you to keep reading, particularly the next little bit. There's kind of a three-step cycle. First of all, you get some, some powerful, astonishing thing that happens. Secondly, as you read in verse 12 onwards, the disciples take the opportunity and share the gospel and people are saved. Maybe that's another step. But the third step is that persecution follows, which in the end leads you back to the start and more and more people are saved. And the more they try and pour water on the fire that is the spread of the gospel, the more the thing roars into life. And as we do Christ's work in the world, some people will be saved. Some will marvel. Some will hate it. And we might well suffer for it. But I would say you try telling that to the man who at the end of this passage is clinging to Peter and John, no longer outside the temple but inside it, but given life by the name of Jesus and I think he would count whatever suffering might come his way as pure joy. We leap for joy because God has redeemed us. We should leap for the opportunities to share in the continuing work of God and in the promise of his spirit's power and we should do so knowing that God will complete the work that he started and knowing that it might well bring persecution to us in the process but know this that there will come a day when Jesus will return and we will leap and sing for joy in his presence let me pray heavenly father we thank you for this passage we thank you for the encouragement that it is to us we bring to you our fears, our insecurities, our failures, our sin, and we thank you that you have redeemed us by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, please comfort us, give us confidence, empower us and remind us of the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us as a community of believers and individually. Please use us to take the saving message of the gospel to a hungry and a needy world. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.